You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. All right, if you could stand to honor the reading of God's Word. We take the Word of God seriously. We believe that it is the Word of God. That's why we ask you, I say this every week, but I say this for the benefit of those of you who are visiting with us today. We really believe that because this is the Word of God, uh, and I really believe this, that uh, I have nothing really uh, amazing to offer you, nothing really good to offer you except for what's in this book. And when we read the words that are in these pages, we as a, uh, the leadership of Meadowbrook Church, we as a church family believe that when you hear these words, you hear the same voice that spoke the galaxies into existence. This is the word of God. So we're looking at Mark uh, chapter 14. If you're looking in your Bible, the words will be on the screen, beginning with verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter and Simon, Peter Simon, uh, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into, temp- into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You may be seated. So I'm going to focus most of our time on the prayer that, uh, that Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, but I'm going, to, I'm going to set up this prayer so you can understand the significance of it. Um, you know, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, which is called you know, the, the triumphal entry, it's also known as Palm Sunday, um, he had one week before he would be crucified. I heard a story that somebody shared, and it was just somebody was just kind of reimagining what it must have uh, been like for Jesus when he sat on the colt that led into Jerusalem as they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, as they were laying palm branches before uh, Jesus as he was riding in expecting that he was going to set up his kingdom right away. Uh, this person, uh, this, this pastor shared this story. He said, you know, imagine, if you, if you want to get an idea of how, what Jesus must have felt, imagine for a moment a young doctor who has a wife and three children, 
And this young doctor has volunteered to take a dangerous six-month mission assignment in a community where the people of that community are hostile towards outsiders. As the months slowly passed, you know, his wife, the mother of his three children, and his children greatly anticipate you know, his arrival. The day finally arrives where, where Dad is co- going to be coming home. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the taxi would be pulling up. That day, the kids were running around, you know, Daddy's coming home, Daddy's coming home. His wife is just, her, her, just butterflies in her stomach, hasn't seen her husband in six months. Finally, the taxi pulls up, and the back door of the taxi opens, and out steps her husband. Has lost a lot of weight. His beard is uh, shielding the, you know, his sunken, darkened cheeks. He steps out, and the kids run to him, and they you know, just wrap their arms around him and just smother him with kisses as he's, you know, knelt down and on, on that front lawn. He stands up and uh, greets his wife, and she says, welcome home, and he responds, it's so good to be home. Now, I want you to look into this doctor's eyes, because there's a message there. And if you could see it and feel it, you'll have a sense for what Jesus must have felt when he entered into Jerusalem that final time to the shouts and acclamations of, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. What you can see in the doctor's eyes is something he knows that his family doesn't know. He caught the disease that he went to go cure, and he has one week to live. That's what Jesus must have felt when he walked in, or when he entered into Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus, all along, said that he would be crucified and that he would rise on the third day. But, but his disciples, not even his disciples, were ready to, to, to hear that. So Jesus expected the cross, while the disciples and everybody else that were celebrating his entry into Jerusalem expected Jesus to set up his, his kingdom, take the throne that was rightly his, get rid of Rome, and establish peace. Now, that's the setting. Now, to understand kind of why, why the cross and, and, and the purpose of the cross, we need, to, we need to go back to another garden before we visit the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and that garden preceded Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. In that garden, there was a couple by the name of Adam and Eve. In that garden, God had uh, created all things and he had given Adam and Eve dominion over the garden. He wanted them to manage the garden. He instructed Adam, he said, all of the, for all the fruit and all the trees in the garden, you, you are welcome to enjoy and to, and, and, and to pick from and to eat and, and all these things you're allowed to enjoy except for one tree. I don't want you to eat the fruit of that tree because if you do, you will surely die. And so God made that command. And, and by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve direct, you know, did exactly what God told them not to do. They took that fruit, 
They were tempted by the serpent, who's also known as the dragon, who's also known as Satan, who's also known as Lucifer, and they bit into it and thereby sinned against God. What was so significant about that? When they did that, they were declaring independence from God. They were declaring, in a sense, war with the Almighty. Like, we deserve to sit on your throne too. We want to be like God. And the Bible says that Adam deliberately disobeyed God. Eve was deceived. That's a whole other sermon. But we learn from the Bible that uh, when Adam sinned, he did so as a representative of the whole human race. Just as uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, it says this, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Uh, there are several factors with Adam's sin. It, one, he represented all of mankind. And uh, the other factor about his sin, it's genetically passed down from generation to generation. Uh, it is, I've said this, it is, the, um, it is a, a transmitted disease passed down from father uh, to child through the mother. We learn later in Romans chapter 5 that death... Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Like one theologian said, I frequently share this quote, this quote by the way, for those of you who've been here for a while. Um, Adam and Eve bit into the fruit, and our teeth have ached ever since. And, and that is true. The reason why you have what's happening in Ukraine, the reason why this world is so upside down, is because we are under a curse. In Romans chapter 5, verse 18, it says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And so, in the garden, you had Adam. In Gethsemane, you have a better Adam. You have one who represented all of mankind. His name is Jesus, who is fully God and fully man at the same time. And, and so... In the first garden, because of the first human's disobedience and rebellion, all of mankind and the rest of creation was cursed. And Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem inevitably led to him or led him to another garden, and that's the garden I want to look at. So, so in Genesis chapter 1, you have a garden. In that garden, the first man uh, who represented mankind sinned against God rebelled against God. In the second garden, or in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, we come to uh, another Adam, a more perfect Adam. And so, um, my, my, I'll, I'll give away my sermon points. My first sermon point is the wounded slave. I'll explain what that means in a minute. And then the second point is the suffering servant. Um, so, as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, we learn that the story of Israel is one of rebellion, sin, and failure, with glimmers of faithfulness. <laughs> the experience of the Hebrew people involves the oppression of the tyrannical empires like Rome. Before Rome, it was Greece. Before Greece, it was uh, Persia. Before Persia, it was Babylon. 
And, uh, and so the, the, the people of Israel longed for the promise that was made to Adam and Eve after their sin, that through their gene pool would come a deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent and he would make all things that's wrong with the world right again. And so when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, that's what they were expecting. They were expecting this, this Messiah, this Jesus, to make all that is wrong with the world right again. And what they failed to see is that our greatest problem is not what's wrong with the world. Our greatest problem is what's wrong with us. That we have a sin problem, every single one of us. And, and so Jesus entered in. I think Judas, who uh, would eventually betray Jesus, was expecting Jesus to be the king. And uh, when things didn't go the way that he was hoping that they would go, he decided to betray Jesus. You know what I think Judas was probably trying to do? I think Judas was trying to force Jesus to, to, to avoid the cross and to establish his kingdom then and there. I don't think Judas was just was being vindictive and trying to have Jesus killed. I think he was just trying to force his hand. And so he betrayed Jesus. And he agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It's really significant. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that, and then we'll come, we'll come full circle here. Uh, in Matthew chapter 26, we, we read this of Judas. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. That is very significant. That is really significant. So remember that, 30 pieces of silver. Hundreds of years ago, before Judas betrayed Jesus, there was a prophet by the name of Zechariah. And I don't know if you ever heard this, but maybe you've asked yourself, what's the significance of 30 pieces of silver? Well, I'm going to tell you. Zechariah, hundreds of years before Jesus was betrayed, uh, was sent by God to preach a, a message of repentance to these formerly exiled Hebrew people who under, I think it was under Persia, were allowed back into Israel, into Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. And what they did instead was they built, bigger house, they built their own homes for themselves and they kind of neglected the worship of God. So Zechariah was sent to them to preach to them, say, no, you need to turn your eyes to God, the God who allowed you to enter back into this land of promise. And they rejected Zechariah's message. So what did Zechariah do? He said, well, um, if you're going to reject me as your shepherd, um, and if I'm not going to serve as your shepherd, then you need to give me what you think is owed to me for the time that I, you know, uh, committed to you. This is really significant. So what did they give him since they rejected him as uh, their shepherd? They gave him 30 pieces of silver, which was symbolic of them rejecting Zechariah as their shepherd slash prophet. Hundreds of years before Zechariah, there was something that was written in the Old Testament law, the law of Moses it's in Exodus, and it says this, and I'll have, I have the words on the screen. Look, consider this. 
If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of what? Silver. And the ox shall be stoned. So when Israel rejected Zechariah as their shepherd, they were essentially saying, here's 30 pieces of silver because you're just as worthless as an injured slave. You have no place here. When Judas went to the chief priests, the religious leaders of his day, and said, hey, I'm, I'm willing to betray Jesus. What will you give me? What did they give him? 30 pieces of silver. Why? Because to them, Jesus was just as useless as an injured slave. And they wanted to get rid of him. They, didn't want, they, they just wanted to silence him. And so Judas agreed. And uh, so he took the 30 pieces of silver, and uh, he went off to betray Jesus. Uh, later on, we're told, like, in, in, if you're taking notes, Matthew 27, um, Judas regretted that he betrayed Jesus, went back to uh, the chief priest in the temple and said, I, you know, I've betrayed innocent blood, I, I, I changed my mind, by that point, you know, they were past the point of no return, and um, Judas took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them in the temple. What I don't think Judas probably knew, or maybe, I'm, I'm not sure that he connected the dots, but that's exactly what Zechariah was told to do when he was rejected as, as Israel's shepherd. He... Um, God told Zechariah, throw your 30 pieces of silver to the potter, which had become known to the, as the place of idolatrous worship. So Zechariah tells us, that he said, I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Judas did the same thing. He threw the 30 pieces of silver on the ground in the temple, and they, uh, the re religious leaders used that for the potter's field. That's a whole other sermon. I just want you to see the, the, how, how all this comes full circle to Jesus. So, so now just, uh, just picture the religious leaders. They view, viewed Jesus as no better than an injured slave, as worthless. All that he did for them was just cause trouble and, and threatened their power. So they wanted to get rid of Jesus. Judas was trying to, in my opinion, trying to force Jesus' hand to set up his kingdom. Um, the exchange for that was 30 pieces of silver. And then, in the midst of all that going on, we find Jesus in, the, in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And by the way, the Garden of Gethsemane literally means the oil press. So... Jesus is in Gethsemane, and he's asked to drink a cup. So we're back in Mark chapter 14 now. Because he's pleading with God the Father, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. In fact, his pleading is not just him begging. He is in great anguish, we're told. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told that he was in so much anguish, so, so, I mean, that the stress that he was experiencing in drinking this metaphorical cup was so great that he sweat drops of blood, which physically can happen, by the way, when you're under great duress. Um, 
So he was sweating great drops of blood. He said, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. And he basically said, I'm willing to drink the cup. And what did it mean for him to drink the cup? It would mean that he would become and be the suffering servant that the... (laughs) Siri interrupted me. Uh, That he would be the suffering servant. Thank you, Siri. Um, In Isaiah 53, which says this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Let's read this together. Ready? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When Jesus was asking me, this cup passed from me, he was asking, if there's any way around this, I'm totally in. (laughs) But if there's no way around this, then I'll drink the cup. If this is what it will require for mankind to receive the cure for their sin by me dying in their place, by me going to a cross that they deserve, by me experiencing every last drop of your wrath God, the Father, that they deserve, I'm willing to drink that cup. While the religious leaders viewed Jesus as a useless, injured slave, and Judas was trying to maybe force uh, Jesus to to avoid the cross, God was, was telling Jesus, and Jesus was committed to the reality that there was no avoiding the cross if sinful mankind like you and me were to be forgiven of our sins through faith and trust in what Jesus was about to do. So he said, not my will, your will be done, which leads me to the second point, the suffering servant. So the the Garden of Gethsemane was a a place kind of on a hill. (laughs) I was hoping I would be able to see it sometime in May. Uh, My Israel trip, I I canceled my Israel trip. But but it was this place... um, where you could find olive trees. And like I said earlier, literally it meant the oil press. So Jesus, here, can you go back to the Isaiah passage? Jesus, oh, there we go. Jesus entered into Gethsemane, the oil press, to drink the cup that would result in him being crushed for our iniquities. Okay, you can go back to the, to be the suffering servant. And in verse 34 of Mark chapter 14, he said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And he tells his disciples, remain here. And then he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And it wasn't, listen, it wasn't the suffering that was the most horrific thing that he would experience like the physical suffering, like the scourging where the, 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 you had these trained Roman soldiers who would literally, they were literally trained in the art of scourging. Some people called it the halfway death, where it was laced with the ends of, the, of these whips, they were called the cat of nine tails, we had uh, bone and glass and maybe some metal, 
in there, it would literally rip the flesh from your, from your back. As horrible as that was, it wasn't that that was the most horrid thing that he, and that he knew he would have to experience. The cross, you couldn't even mention the cross at the dinner table in first century Judea because it was so horrible. When they crucified people, and we'll talk more about this on Good Friday, but you were hung there naked, and it was meant to humiliate you, and it was a very slow death and a very painful death. It literally felt like your body was on fire. Any of you have ever had sciatica? How many of you have had sciatica? It's a horrible thing. Experience, uh, just uh, think of your entire body experiencing that. It wasn't that that, that was the most horrid thing that Jesus uh, anticipated. What was the most horrid thing that Jesus anticipated was drinking and experiencing the full wrath of God on your behalf and my behalf. The thing that, that, that uh, caused so much anxiety in Jesus to the point where he sweat drops of blood was that he understood by, that by going to the cross, the Father would reject him, would turn his back to him. That he would be rejected, that he would experience um, our hell, essentially, on that cross. Jonathan Edwards, who's one of my heroes in the faith, said this of that cup, of Jesus' agony in Gethsemane. The words will not be on the screen. Just Jonathan Edwards' picture. That's Jonathan Edwards. Um, <laughs> in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had then a near view of the furnace, of that furnace of wrath, into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. It was necessary that he should have an extraordinary sense of how great these sufferings were to be before he endured them. This was given in his agony. That's why he stared at that metaphorical cup and he said, if it is your will, let it pass from me. Another guy, a, a pastor by the name of C.J. Mahaney, said this of that cup. I can't say it any better than this. This is the best description I've read. He said, in that vivid imagery of the Old Testament, this cup is filled with fire and sulfur and scorching wind. Like some volcanic firestorm, like all the fury of Mount St. Helens eruption concentrated within a coffee mug. No wonder scripture says that tasting from this cup caused the drinker to stagger and be crazed. No wonder that when Jesus stares into the detestable vessel, he stumbles to the ground. That's why there's shuddering and terror and deep distress for him at this moment. In the crucible of human weakness, he is brought face to face with the abhorrent reality of bearing our iniquity and becoming the object of God's full and furious wrath. Does that make sense? That's the significance of Gethsemane. Uh, there's this, in case you're wondering about, you know, chapter and verse, how, how do we know that this cup that Jesus is asking to be passed from him is the cup of God's wrath. 
Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. I don't know if I have the words on the screen or not, but um, okay, it's fine. I'll, I'll read it for you if you're taking notes. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. That's the cup Jesus is referring to. And then he says, on behalf of you and on behalf of me, he says, not, not my will, but your will be done, Father. I'm going to drink every last drop, every last drop, for Keith Miller and for you fill in the blank with your name. Judas may have thought that he could force Jesus' hand to avoid the cross by taking on the crown of David's throne, and the religious leaders may have believed that the, way, that the wage that they paid to compensate for a wounded, useless slave was enough to silence Jesus and to get rid of him for good. But what they failed to see was that the King of Kings was committed to receive our cross before he would wear his crown. That's why this week is so significant. And this is what Jesus anticipated when he, when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And Jesus understood this. Like he knew, he knew that in the process of things that would lead to his crucifixion, that 30 pieces of silver would be exchanged. That's why he said earlier in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he said this, let's, let's read this together. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. There's a Greek word in the Bible that could be translated servant. It can also be translated slave. It's doulos. Even though it's not used you know, in this verse, it is referred to as Jesus becoming a servant. He came to seek and save the, la the, the lost. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, we read these words. For Christ, let's read this together, ready? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's why he drank the cup. He drank the cup so that we could be reconciled to this God that we have sinned against. You know, um, Adam and Eve bit into the fruit, but uh, we probably would have done the same thing. And Jesus went into that garden, the, 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 the oil press, where, he, was, where he, was beginning, he began to experience the crushing that he would fully experience on the cross for your sins and for my sins, for your transgressions, for my transgressions. And he did it. And, and not only was the, God the Father on his mind as he hung on that cross, but you were on his mind. That's why he was committed to it. Like no other religion in the world uh, claims or offers, let me it's a better word, offers redemption and salvation that is freely yours because of what someone else who was perfect did in your place. Like you cannot do enough to earn a place at God's table in heaven. Like no matter how many times you read the Bible, no matter how many times you pray, it's not enough. We will always and continually fall short of God's standard of perfect holiness. That's why Jesus was born. 
That's why he lived the life that we could never live. That's why when he stared into that cup, he said, I'm going to drink it, every last drop for them, so that they could experience you know, a redemption that, that, they, that they're incapable of manufacturing on their own. Like some say that uh, salvation is free, and it is. But it's free at great cost, and it was great cost to the Son of God who died in your place and in my place. One theologian said this. I have this little book. It's really, really good. Called the titled The Cross He Bore. And um, in that, the author, who's in heaven now, um, he said this. He said, We see him enduring our hell so that we might be set free to enter his heaven. And so, uh, and so at unspeakable cost, he drank the cup to the very last drop. And so what ought to be your response? What ought to be my response? Well, if you're not a Christian, if you're still trying to figure out this thing, trying to figure out life, trying to figure out you know, salvation, trying to figure out who this Jesus is, like, your, your next step should be to receive this gift that, he so fr- that God so freely offers you that was at great cost to his son. That Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to the Father except by me or through me. The Bible says there's salvation found in no one else but Jesus. And that's not because God is a mean, vindictive God. If any one of you found yourself diagnosed with terminal cancer, and you were in the hospital, and the doctor came in and said to you, you're going to die. It's inevitable. Unless you take this one, there's only one cure for this type of cancer. It's 100%, it will cure you, but there's only one way. There's no other option. You could try diets, you could try this, you could try that, and they're all going to fail. But this option is guaranteed to cure your cancer. Would your response to that doctor be, you're so mean? Like, it should be broader than that. Why are you so exclusive? Like, would that be your, your response? Well, that's what God did. He said, there's one cure for your sin. There's one cure. And it's 100% that it will cure, it, it, will, it will pay and atone for your sin. But there's only one way. And Jesus is that way. There is no other way. There is no other way for the forgiveness of your sins but through Jesus and, and, and through him alone. Because he was the only perfect you know, human being who was also God. He was qualified to, to die in our place for our sins. Never sinned. And what he accomplished on the cross was enough for your past, present, and future sins. What he accomplished on the cross is enough for anybody who would place their faith and trust in him, anybody who would seek the forgiveness of their sins through Jesus. But there's only one way. So that would be my appeal to you if you're still trying to figure out, man, what what does it mean to to be a Christian? That's my appeal to you. And for the rest of us, for the rest of you who have already placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, man, the gospel is not a one-time event for you. This is not... It's not a a picture in your wallet that you stare at once and you forget about. The gospel is something we need to remind ourselves all of the time. That my righteousness and your righteousness is fully complete 
and perfect because your righteousness and my righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that was provided for us on a cross in our place. Amen? And so, and, and, the, and this is the greatest news and the greatest hope, you know, of the nations. And, and so Cheyenne and, and cities out, you know, towns and cities outside of Cheyenne need to hear this news. And we are heralds of this news. God has commissioned you and he's commissioned me to be his mouthpiece, to be his hands, to be his feet, to tell people that there is salvation that is found only in Jesus, that you can go from being an enemy of God to being a son or a daughter of the living God, that you can be reconciled to this God that you were made for. You can know the kind of joy that God intends for you through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because he drank every last, cup, every last drop of the cup of God's wrath for you and for me. So we wouldn't have to. And to reject Jesus is to, is to posture ourselves in a way to set us up to have to drink that cup, to drink from that cup that Jesus already drank from. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Jesus. When he entered into Jerusalem, his eyes were not on a throne, but his eyes were on a cross. The cross that he would embrace for, for us, for your glory and for our good. And that's all, all of that is validated in the reality that he rose from the grave and so, God, we thank you for that. And for anyone, Father, who's in this room or who's watching the live stream who does not yet know you because they do not yet know your Son, they have not placed their faith and trust in him, they have not received the forgiveness of their sins that has been provided through Jesus, God, I just pray that they would hear these words from your word, <laughs> that all who confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that you, O oh God, raised him from the grave, that they will be saved that there is salvation found in no one else but the name of Jesus, Jesus the Christ, who lived the life that we could never live, died a death that we all deserved, and on the third day rose from the grave. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.